0: Grateful for you guys. Hope you got a good night's rest and uh, you're ready to go. A lot we want to deal with today and cover. Uh, I hope uh, you know as as we walk through this. I hope you'll be challenged but not overwhelmed. You know these are this is a skill. If you're new, some of you guys are just beginning to teach. Others of you have many years of experience. But don't be intimidated. This is a skill you have to learn and layer. Just like any other skill you have, whether it's a sport you learned or some other skill, there is a pattern and a process. And so I'm just trying to lay the foundation that we all can work toward. And uh, so I uh, I hope you won't be discouraged by that, but encouraged as we get started today. And I thought it would be good as we begin to just rehearse again where we left off last night. I just want to recap exegesis. Exegesis, you remember, is is studying the biblical text. It's bringing out, drawing out the truth that is in a given biblical text. And, and that process is uh, inductive Bible study. It involves five basic tasks. And we talked about all those last night. Preparation, that's really just getting yourself ready, making sure you have the right tools, making sure your heart is is rightly dependent on the Holy Spirit as your teacher. But then comes the core, the heart of exegesis, which is observation. And that's why I walked through all 12 of those steps. As I mentioned to you, the first four of them, many of those things happen uh, before you begin your week-to-week study of a book. Number four, identifying the paragraphs, that sort of happens some before and some during as you're walking through the process and then the rest of those beginning with block diagramming your preliminary theme and the other the other items there all happen in the given week that you're studying to prepare. So you have observation that is the heart of your exegetical work But but that's not where it ends. We mentioned in addition to observation then as you gather all of that research all of those details into your mind and onto your pieces of paper you need to seriously think about it you need to deliberately choose to think deeply about the passage you're studying in order first of all to better understand it to gain the insight that meditation promises and then secondly to plan how to do it to devise remember that word to devise a plan and and that's really so important i can't stress that enough It is so easy to become purely academic in your study of God's Word. And those of you who have done it for years, you understand this. But meditation is key to internalizing the truth. It becomes ours, so we're not simply standing up giving information, but we have really embraced it personally. Then interpretation. Now you've got to make a decision. What does this passage really mean? What is it teaching? And then evaluation, that's when you take and compare where you've landed on interpretation. This is what I think it means with experts in the field, the commentaries who give you feedback. And again, it's a check to make sure that you're not going off astray. And it gains, you, you gain much uh, additional insight and application and illustration from those resources as well. Alright, so that's where we, we left off last night. Now again, let me remind you of the big picture of what we're doing in these two days. We started with the arguments, defending expository preaching, just a, just a brief look at why consecutive exposition is the biblical approach. And uh, then we spent the rest of our time last night in what I just reviewed, exegesis, studying the biblical text. Here's where we're going today today. Uh, Next, we're going to look at exposition, that is crafting an expository sermon. Taking all of the data that you collected in your study and creating a sermon from that data. And we'll talk specifically about the transition and how that works. Then uh, I'll spend a brief time in the end of the session on delivery, that is actually preaching the the message that you created. And then the, the next session we're going to rehearse the key elements. I want to bring out the key points of everything we've looked at in exegesis, and I want to show you practically, kind of a workshop, how to take the the key issues and translate them into an outcome where you can preach a text, any text. So that's where we're going, and uh, so let's get started then with exposition, crafting an expository sermon. Just to remind you, there are two words that summarize everything we do in preaching, and that is exegesis, studying the text of Scripture, and then exposition, that's preparing or crafting an expository sermon. To exegete is to draw out everything that's there. To exposit is to expose, to make visible, to make known, to show something for what it really is. Once you have completed all of that exegetical work, You only have the necessary ingredients for creating an expository sermon. You haven't yet created the expository sermon. Walt Kaiser, in his book, puts it this way, exegesis is never an end in itself. Its purposes are never fully realized until it begins to take into account the problems of transferring what has been learned from the text over to the waiting church. To put it more bluntly, exegesis must come to terms with the audience as well as with what the author meant by the words he used. Um, John Stott in his classic book, Between Two Worlds, describes this reality, right? We have the biblical world, that's our exegesis, and we have the the contemporary world and our hearers, there's there's the other world we live in. And our messages have to bridge both of those well. John MacArthur puts it this way, "...preaching an expository message involves far more than standing in the pulpit and reviewing the high points, details, and components unearthed through research. Neither a word study nor a running commentary on a passage is in itself an expository sermon." An expository sermon does more than simply explain the grammatical structure of a passage and the meanings of its words. The task of the expository preacher is to take the mass of raw data from the text and bridge the gap between exegesis and exposition. So that's what we want to do in this session. We want to bridge that gap between the two Now, to help you understand the relationship between exegesis and exposition, one author illustrates that relationship using pearls. He says, exegesis and the the exegete is like a diver who brings up the pearls from the ocean floor. An expositor is like the jeweler who carefully arranges them into a necklace. It's a great analogy. In your exegetical work, you dive deep to get the pearls of God's Word that are there. But in exposition, you take those pearls and you arrange them neatly in a way that reflects the authorial intent and yet is clear to your audience and means something to them. Exegesis is a science with fixed laws and methods Creating an expository message from that exegesis is more an art. There are science elements to it. We'll see see that as we walk through it, but it's also an art that you develop in and learn. I want to take us deeper into each of the steps in the art of of an expository message. Just as we did with exegesis where I gave you a series of tasks that are involved in exegesis, I want to do the same with creating your sermon. Here is a summary of the process, and I'm going to develop each of these, but here's how you take your exegetical work and convert it into a sermon. First of all, you write the proposition. This is absolutely foundational because the passage is about something, and so your sermon has to be about something, and hopefully it's the same thing the passage is about. That's writing the proposition. Then structuring the message. There's your outline. You have to you have to show the structure uh, any any good communication involves basic structure and our job as exegetes is to follow the structure of the passage and make that the structure of our message then you have to build the body of the sermon once you've got the the heart which is the proposition and once you've got the skeleton which is your outline now you've got to put some meat on the bones you got to fill in the message with all the the proper data to help explain that passage to your listeners. Then you want to create a logical flow. That is your transitions from one point to the next. You have to show your listeners, I'm now leaving one point and going to another point, and that's the logical flow. Then you write an introduction and conclusion, and then you'll want to format your notes. That is, you need to decide... What are your notes going to be like? How are you going to format them? How are you going to mark them? How are you going to make sure that you can glance down at your notes and see the important things and they'll jump out at you? We'll talk about that as well. And then preparing your heart to preach. What do you, what do, you do to go once your, your exegetical work is done, your message is finished, how do you prepare your own heart in order to get into that pulpit and preach? So that's, that's a summary of the process we're going to deal with as we think about moving from exegesis to exposition. Now, how do the specific steps in exegesis that we talked about, how do those relate to exposition? A careful exegesis of the passage will provide you with the key components of a biblical expository sermon. And here's how it works. In exegesis, look at those those three components there. In your exegesis, here's what you gathered. You gathered the theme of the passage. You gathered the syntactical structure, that is the, the flow of the author's thought in your block diagramming. And then you gathered, in addition to that, a lot of detail, a lot of historical and grammatical detail. Your word studies, all of the... the The cross-references, all of the data that you collected, those are the three fruits of your labor in exegesis. You've got the theme of the passage, you've got the author structure, and then you've got all of this detail that you've collected. How do those relate then to your expository sermon? Well, first of all, the theme, the exegetical theme that you arrive at in an expository message becomes your proposition. Whatever you said that passage was about, you're going to make some changes to it, and we'll talk about what those changes are, but it becomes the heart of your proposition in your sermon. The syntactical structure, what you got, that visual overview in your block diagram, that becomes your outline. And all of the data that you collected, the historical and grammatical detail, that fills out the body of your message. So that's how the the various parts of exegesis relate then to the finished sermon. So with that in mind, let's walk through then this process of creating an expository sermon. As I said, it begins with writing the proposition. Writing the proposition. I have a a couple of shelves in my library of books on preaching. And although those different resources disagree on many different points, all of them, without exception, agree on the need for a proposition. The terminology that they use varies. Some of them call it the proposition. Others call it the central idea, the big idea, the theme, the thesis, the main thought. There are a lot of different ways it's expressed, but whatever you call it, Every cohesive sermon has a proposition. As we've seen again and again, the heart of our job as preachers is to find the central theme of the author in that passage, to understand how he develops that theme, and then to make his theme and his development of that theme central to our our sermon. And at the heart of that is a proposition. What exactly is a proposition? Well, John Broadus, in his classic book on the preparation and delivery of sermons, says this, whether a sermon has two points or ten points, it must have one point. It must be about something. And the proposition identifies that one point. Think of it this way the proposition is the sermon reduced to one sentence. What is the sermon about? It, it, in an expository message, the proposition is the exegetical theme of the passage put into the form of a timeless truth. If you're just doing a topical sermon that has no relationship, then maybe your, your proposition is something you create. But if you're doing a, an expository sermon, it's not something you create. It is the theme of that passage, the author's theme, put into a timeless form. And we'll talk more about how to do that. And obviously, it should be as concise as possible without sacrificing clarity. Uh, Vine and Shaddix, in their book on preaching, argue that for the sake of conciseness, it should be no longer than 15 to 18 words. Uh, you know, that's arbitrary, but you get the point. The point is it ought to be concise. It ought to be something that you can say briefly, concisely, and that people can hear and follow and they know what what your message is about. So the purpose of the proposition is to declare in a clear-cut statement the timeless theme of the passage you're preaching and the exact objective of the sermon. And hopefully those two are the same. All right? So how do you do it? Let's talk about the necessary components of a proposition. Let me give you a summary. And I'm going to fill these out. So if you don't understand it right away, I'm going to give you examples. So stay with me. I think you will get it. The proposition, technically speaking, involves three parts, three elements. The first element is a concise statement of the timeless truth of the passage. That's what I was just talking about a moment ago. That is really the heart and soul of your message. It is the the proposition in its most true form. But there are other elements, a package of three elements that make this up. The, The concise statement of the timeless truth contained in the preaching text You've gotten that central idea of the text, and you've written it in a one-sentence summary. Then there is an interrogative. An interrogative is, is usually one of five adverbs that connect the proposition to the main points of the sermon. They, it includes words like why, how, what, when, where. That's the interrogative. And then there is a transitional statement. The transitional sentence links the proposition and the main points, and this is key, and you'll see it. Stay with me. You're going you're to see illustrations. You'll get this. But the transitional sentence includes a key word, and that key word is always a plural noun. That plural noun is what your outline points are. That plural noun is a description of whatever your outline points are. So let me just show you an example, all right? This is an example that I have adapted from, from Vine and Shaddix. And um, let's start with a text. Start on the left-hand side with me here and look at the text. Let's say you're preaching 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, when you're doing your exegetical work, you're trying to arrive at, okay, what is the point? What is the author's point of this passage? The exegetical theme, maybe you would write something like this: Paul charged Timothy to faithfully pass the treasure of sound doctrine to the next generation. Okay, that, that is your exegetical theme. You're just trying to say, what is this about? And The simplest way you can. But when you come to to convert that to a proposition, you want to make some changes. You want to identify and change those elements that need to be made timeless. Remember, you're making the bridge in your sermon from the biblical world to the modern world. So you want to take out, for example, past tense verbs often unless they describe something God did in the past. You know, God saved us in Christ, or God, you know, if if you're talking about something God did that's part of redemptive history, then maybe you leave that past tense verb in. But if you're talking about other people, you don't want past tense verbs. You don't want proper names often, except for God's name. And you don't want dated terminology. You don't want specific circumstances in the past. You want to make it timeless. And cultural issues, and so forth. So when you look at the exegetical theme there on the left, what are the elements there that are dated? Paul, Timothy, um, charged, past tense verb, and the rest of it is pretty well timeless. So when we look at the timeless truth, here we've taken our exegetical theme. All that's happened here is we've taken the exegetical theme and taken out those dated references so now we have what is who is paul in this context and who is timothy well paul is the one doing the ch- the charging here but what is who is he charging he's charging timothy what group does timothy represent pastors christian leaders you could say pastors you could say elders but you can also say Christian leaders. Christian leaders must faithfully pass the treasure of sound doctrine to the next generation. Do you see how your exegetical theme with those changes of dated things from the past becomes then the proposition of your sermon? Why? Because that's what the verse is about. And if you're being faithful to preach that verse, then you're going to take his theme, and make it timeless, and it becomes the main point of your sermon. You tracking with me? Do you see that? All right, so then there's your timeless truth. Then in your proposition package, there's going to be an interrogative. So you, you state the timeless truth. This passage teaches this. Christian leaders must faithfully pass the treasure of sound doctrine to the next generation. And then comes an interrogative that transitions But how do we accomplish that task? See the adverb how, the question? How does that happen? And the reason this this interrogative is how is because I believe that this passage is teaching how. I didn't just pull that word out of the air. It's like this passage is telling us how to do this. Then comes the transition sentence. Paul identifies the key principles Involved in building a ministry to last are creating a legacy of faithful men. Now, you'll see I'm I'm using now a plural noun. What's the plural noun in that transition statement? Principles. Why did I choose the word principles? Because that noun describes what's being taught in this verse. It describes my outline points. Each of them is a principle. You see the cohesiveness? You have your exegetical theme becomes your proposition and the timeless truth builds into an interrogative. What is this passage telling us about that timeless truth? It's telling us how. It's not telling us why, although why is there, but, but it's primarily telling us how to do this. And then I'm, I am taking the, the principles of how, and I'm using the word principles to describe the, the rest of what's taught here and each of my outline points is a principle. Employ the right method in trust, that's to teach and disciple. Impart the right content. Pick the right men, faithful men and pursue the right goals. Here's what this passage says those men should be when they're fully trained. Okay? You see that? You see the structure and how it works? So that's a That's an example then of of how this works. By the way, I will give you and what I'll send you with the package of things, we'll send you um, a list of plural nouns. It's not all-encompassing, but it'll give you an idea of the kinds of plural nouns you can use, several pages of plural nouns that you you can use. And when you do this, I would encourage you to work toward exactness. When we get lazy... What do we use for our plural noun? I have five things this passage teaches. We use the word things a lot. That's not helpful. Be more exact. What are they? Are they warnings? Are they, are they principles? Are they motivations? Or what are the, the outline points describing? And the outline points, as we'll see, flow out of the passage. So be exact and work toward that um, Let me give you another example. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 11. I preached this message a number of years ago at Shepherds Conference. The the timeless truth of the passage is be careful how you build. And in this case, I didn't have to come up with the timeless truth. Paul did. He says exactly those words in this passage. Be careful how you build. Then I put the interrogative in statement form. But Paul does more here than give us a warning. He tells us how to build. Again, how works because that's what he's doing in this passage. My transitional sentence was he gives three foundational, and here's my plural noun, instructions for how to build a church because that's what he's doing here. He's giving us instructions for how to build a church, build on the right foundation, use the right materials, and remember the rightful owner. So Again, you see the cohesiveness that you need to capture as you put these things together. Uh, Let me give you another example and and help me here. I I preached two messages on Romans 5, 1 to 11. These were my outline points. We have peace with God. We stand in God's grace. We hope in God's glory. We rejoice in our tribulations we are confident of God's love. We will be saved from God's wrath. We glory in God's person. By the way, I could have made that first point completely parallel and said something like we have peace with God's law. I said we have peace with God. Um, my outline would have obscured, I think, the clarity of what Paul's teaching if I would made that change, so I left it alone in this case intentionally. Now, what would you call those How do those things relate to justification? Having been justified, we have, and those are the the list. What what would you say those are? Give me a plural noun. Results. Results, That word works. Results. What else? What other other plural nouns would describe what that passage is teaching about justification? Having been justified, these things are true. Blessings. Blessings. That's another plural noun that works. Benefits is the word that I chose, similar to the ones that have been mentioned. So you see how this works. You're you're saying, what does this passage teach? Reduce the truth to a timeless uh, truth, and then you transition to your plural noun, which is going to give you the, the clarity as you teach through this passage. And again, work for exactness. Several plural nouns can work, results But as I said, I chose benefits. So my transition sentence in Romans 5 was this. In these incredibly rich verses, Paul identifies the amazing benefits of our justification. And then each of my outline points flowing through the text were the benefits of justification. Having been justified, these things are true. Let me give you another example. This is James 1, 13 to 18 about being tempted. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, that passage. The timeless truth is temptation is a universal human experience. We will be tempted as long as we live. The interrogative that I used was how, there again, because I do think this passage is is explaining how, how should we respond when we find ourselves facing temptation? The transitional sentence was James outlines four godly responses, there's my plural noun, to temptation. Here's how we ought to respond to temptation. Accept the responsibility, identify the source, understand the process, and unmask the deception. So, again, the, I'm following James' structure, and we'll talk more about how to do that in a minute, but my proposition takes the exegetical theme converts it to a timeless truth, and then ties it with a plural noun to my outline points. This is really helpful for clarity. This isn't just playing games. This, lets, this gives your listeners a roadmap, both to the passage and to your sermon. As far as the delivery of the proposition Generally, this package we're talking about generally fits near the end of the introduction, just before you move into the first main division. So think introduction, end of introduction, this package, the propositional package. Maybe you read the text first before you begin your introduction. Maybe you read the text just before you deliver this package. But regardless, it's going to come normally just before you begin the first main point so that they know where you're going uh, in your sermon. Although that's the norm, there are two viable reasons to present the proposition in your conclusion. There there are two reasons you may want to hold your proposition and bring it at the end. One of those is when you have a hostile audience who's not gonna listen once you present your proposition. And the classic example of that is Peter in Acts 2. You know, he lays down, of course, Stephen, As well later in the book of Acts, but in Acts two thirty-six, after Peter has preached the bulk of his sermon, here comes his proposition. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And of course, everything breaks loose. (laughs) Um, So there that's with a hostile audience, sometimes that's the way to go. You you explain, you bring in the issues, and then boom, you bring the proposition in at the end. You're, you're teaching in a setting, let's say in a public school setting or something where, where you know that not everybody's going to tolerate what you're saying or the point of the passage. You explain it all, you bring it to bear, and then you bring the proposition at the end. Another reason to do that in our preaching is when you're teaching through a narrative that builds to the main point. For example, when I preach 1 Samuel 17, story of David and Goliath, I didn't want to give away the point at the beginning. I wanted to build to the point. So I preached through the entire chapter and then brought the main point of the passage only at the end. I brought them along with me. So so those are a couple of reasons you might want to bring the proposition at the end. But normally it's coming at the beginning, uh, at the end of your introduction, just before your first main point is when that package comes. Now, if you're tempted to skip this step, listen to J.H. Jowett, who pastored in London at the same time Spurgeon did, famous preacher. He said this, No sermon is ready for preaching, not ready for writing out, until we can express its theme in a short, pregnant sentence as clear as crystal. I find the getting of that sentence is the hardest, the most exacting, and the most fruitful labor in my study. I do not think any sermon ought to be preached or even written until that sentence has emerged clear and lucid as a cloudless moon. He's exactly right. It is absolutely crucial to the sermon. It is the heart of the sermon. Just like if you're trying to explain that passage over over coffee to someone... I hope you're going to explain the main point, that's what you do in your proposition. It's the main point of the passage, and it's the main point of the sermon. So, let's move on then to the second part of building an expository sermon. We've seen the the proposition, which is absolutely crucial, so let's move on to structuring the lesson. Structuring the lesson. First of all, Let me just give you some principles for creating the outline. That's what we're talking about here. It needs to reflect the syntactical analysis. It needs to, in other words, you want to follow your block diagram in producing your outline. It needs to grow out of the proposition. In other words, they need to be related, as I just showed you. The key word, that plural noun, your outline points need to be those. If you use the word principles, then all of your outline points need to be principles. If you use the word benefits, all of your outline points need to be benefits. And if you ha- if they're not, then either you've, you've structured it wrong or you've chosen the wrong plural noun. They ought to work together if you're capturing the meaning of the passage. Uh, ought not to be any overlap. You need to show progression through the passage so you're walking through the passage with, with the outline. Should be limited in number. Now, um, what I mean by that is, if you're doing a paragraph, there are not going to be 20 points in a paragraph. It's, it's going to be fewer than that simply because it's a small, it's a small um, text. And so, you're looking at somewhere typically from 2 to 10. There's going to be more than one point. It's going to be developed in some way. And it's unlikely that a paragraph is going to have more than 10 points in it. So, somewhere in that, way, in that category. It should be parallel in the parts of speech, and I'm going to give you some examples of outlines. You'll see that. If you use a noun prepositional phrase for your first point, you should use a noun prepositional phrase for your second point and a noun prepositional phrase for your third point, point, so forth. And then it should be in timeless form. So let me give you the types of outlines. There are three basic types of outlines you can use. There is, first of all, directives, that is imperative outline points that make a command of the listener. Then there are the indicative ones. They are either statements or questions. And then there are what are called markers of the text. Let me give you some examples. Here is directives in the imperative mood. I just showed you this a moment ago. This makes a command because the text makes a command. Build on the right foundation use the right materials, remember the rightful owner. Those are imperatives, commanding the listener to do something. Don't force this approach on the text. Some texts it works for, and other texts it doesn't. So you use this when the text is really making commands of the listener. Here are some examples of statements and questions in the indicative mood. I was preaching through Ephesians 4, preserving the unity of the church, and verses 4 to 6 there have that list. There's, you know, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. This was my outline point. Focus on the basis of our unity, and then here are our statements. These are indicatives. We share a common life. We share a common origin. We share a common future. We share a common master, a common belief. We share a common confession. We share a common God and Father. So you can see there those are in a sentence form. That's a legitimate outline structure. Here's another example. This is uh, in that same passage. The components of Christ's plan for his church, Christ distributes spiritual gifts to the church, Christ appoints the leaders of the church, the leaders equip the members of the church, the members accomplish the ministry of the church, and the plan results in the growth of the church. So those are sentences. You can also do the indicative mood in questions. Um, when I did the same passage, when I did verse 13 of Ephesians 4, I, I used questions. The goal of Christ's plan, when will we reach the goal? Who will reach the goal? How will we reach the goal? What is the goal? Again, just flowing through that verse and used questions for my outline as opposed to um, statements or imperatives. The last kind of outline. Uh, Structure you can use is just call markers of the text. That is, it marks the flow through a given passage. Uh, here's a simple example: the command, the method, the results. And again, it would assume you're walking through the passage, just marking the flow of that passage. Here are some some that I've used: Mark two, uh, a specific question about fasting, a specific answer about fasting, a general principle about Jesus' kingdom. You'll notice those are not imperatives and they're not indicatives. They're not sentences or questions. They're markers of the text. They mark the flow through the passage. Here's another example from Matthew 18, a picture of God's forgiveness of us, a picture of our unwillingness to forgive others. The parable of the soils, the unreceptive heart, the superficial heart, the preoccupied heart, the prepared heart. Markers of the text. Now, Those are the outline types you can use. When do you develop your outline? Well, it's kind of an integrated approach. Think about your outline from the beginning of the time you start your block diagram. When you're doing your block diagram, you're looking at his structure, and you're thinking about his structure, and you begin thinking about your own structure and how it's going to reflect that. So it's kind of a, a process Think about it, write down ideas as you walk through it. Always be thinking homiletical outline, that is preaching outline, even as you're doing your exegetical work. How can I take his structure and make it mine? So those are the outlines. We'll we'll talk more about that in our next session when we get to some practice, and I'll show you exactly what that looks like. But let's move on then from the structure. We've talked about the proposition, talked about the outline. Let's come to building the body of the message. The body of your message will always consist of four elements. Explanation, argumentation, illustration, and application. This is what your sermon will be composed of. Every main point in your outline, listen carefully, will always include the first one. Explanation. Why? Because if you're not explaining, it's not an expository message. So always explanation, then not not always will you include argumentation. We'll talk about when that's necessary, but sometimes you'll include argumentation. Um, And then you will often include illustration and application. Now, often the discussion under each main point will flow through that list. Normally, your explanation comes first. Why? You can't illustrate and apply what you haven't explained. So normally the first thing under your main point will be explanation. Then, if there is argumentation, it typically will come next because you're arguing for your explanation. You're saying, here's why you ought to believe this. Then comes illustration and application. Um, as you it, it may weave, illustration and application may weave throughout the main division, but explanation will always come first. So let's, let's look at these. First of all, explanation This is what it says and what it means. This is what it says and what it means. Vines and Shattuck say, explanation is foundational for expository preaching and it is its primary distinguishing factor. Robert Thomas said, the point that differentiates expository sermons from other types is not the cleverness of their outlines or their catch cliches, neither is it their relevance These are helpful and necessary, but if the explanation of what the author meant is missing, so is the heart of Bible exposition. So this is what distinguishes exposition. Now, when we talk about explaining the text, all we're talking about is that data that you collected in your study, what you learned from the context, how that that paragraph relates to what came before and after it, the syntax, your block diagram, and how the phrases and clauses connect back to the main point of the paragraph, the word studies you did, the historical data you collected, the theological issues that need to be explained. So this is where your explanation comes from. It is a gathering of the data that you collected in exegesis in an organized way. Secondly comes argumentation. What if I told you that everybody sitting, listening to you teach Believes everything you say just because they respect you so much. Yeah, I hear the chuckles. You get it. I, you'd say, "Listen, Tom, I was born at night, but not last night." I, I know that's not true, and it's not. It's never true. Every time we speak, there are people sitting out there arguing with us because they've heard something else. They've they've come to a different conclusion, or maybe they've never considered it, but they're just skeptical. And so, our job is to anticipate their objections and answer them in the message. This is called argumentation. The primary purpose of argumentation is to convince the listener that our interpretation of the passage conforms to the rest of Scripture and should therefore be embraced as the truth. Now, our primary tools for argumentation are there on the slide in front of you. The primary tool is the Scripture itself, the exegetical detail. That we've we've dug out in our research. Parallel passages that support and prove the point we're making in that passage. And supporting passages of scripture using the analogy of faith. Logic is not uh, inappropriate to you. Sometimes you'll say this has to mean this because, and then you lay out your logic. Authorities is another way to argue argue. You can quote, commentaries, systematic theologies, church history, quotations from reputable expositors to say, look, I'm not standing out here alone on this interpretation. There are other voices that you believe who've said the same thing about this passage. So that's argumentation. And again, you won't need to use that even in every sermon, but you'll use it often. Whenever you think that somebody sitting out there is going to go, I don't think so then you want to include argumentation. And the more people that are going to argue with you, the more extensive your argumentation needs to be. So if you're, if you're in a church where everybody comes from a background that's more Arminian and you're teaching about election, then you, you're going to need to lay out your case more carefully, obviously, and graciously. So you, you, it depends what you're preaching and your audience as to how much of this there is. The, the body will also, the body of your message will also consist, thirdly, of illustration. This is what it looks like. You are going to need to include illustration. Sangster uh, was talking about how often Jesus used illustration. And in response to that, he said this, only a combination of vanity and blasphemy could convince a man that the matter of illustrating the truth was beneath his notice. If our Lord used so much illustration from everyday life from things that that uh, people encountered then it's certainly important for us. The example of Christ makes illustrations imperative. But before we talk about the proper use let me just tell you there are bad uses, misuses of illustrations. Sadly, Many will use a tearful story to manipulate the emotions of the hearer. Don't ever do that. Don't ever tell a story just to sort of jerk heartstrings. Others, just to relate an interesting story that they heard. It reminds me of the cartoon in Preaching Magazine years ago where the preacher's on his knees praying, and he says, Lord, please give me a sermon to go with this illustration. Uh, Sadly, that's all too true. Sometimes i got to fit it in because I like it, and I just heard it, and it's a great story. Don't do that, all right? Um, Others use illustration to pad a poorly prepared message. In other words, they just insert story after story after story, illustration after illustration. that make them longer than they need to be because they didn't really prepare, and they're just filling. And, you know, people aren't stupid. Let me just say the people in your congregation, they know that. They can tell if that's happening. Others insert illustrations just to get a laugh. a a string of jokes, you know, like a stand-up comedian. What is the legitimate use of illustrations? Well, the English word illustrate comes from a Latin word meaning to let the light in. Every illustration should serve as a window to let additional light in on the truth. Illustrations clarify the truth. That's the reason we use them most often. They can also be used to humanize the truth, to show what it looks like in real life, or to emphasize the truth, to really punctuate the truth you're teaching. Those are the the right and legitimate uses of illustration. So where do you get illustrations? The answer is not the internet. John Stott tells the story of when a minister wrote the Bishop of London asking him to recommend a book of sermon illustrations. And he got a a card back with just two words on it, the Bible, the Bible. That's right. But but where is the best place in the Scripture to look for illustrations? A few years ago, a number of years ago now, I had this sort of uh, epiphany and um, a a moment of inspiration. I was in the middle of preparing a message, and, and I discovered that the best starting place for finding illustrations is in the preaching text itself. Where and how? Well, in the teaching text itself, sometimes there are actual illustrations. For example, if you're preaching Psalm 1, you've got got chaff, weed and chaff. You've got the tree. So they're often in a given text in Scripture. Their illustration is already there. So that should immediately get you thinking of places you can go. Uh, Sometimes, or uh, let me give you one other example there. In 1 Corinthians 3, when I was preaching, be careful how you build, there in that text are illustrations of building. So there I go. There's the idea for where my illustrations go. Um, Another place is allusions, our word pictures in the text. Just as an example, um, in Psalm 1 again, there's the word way. Derek in, in the Hebrew text, and it describes a well-worn rut. So there's an illustration idea. Where have I encountered a well-worn rut? And in my case, I grew up in South Alabama, and when I was preaching Psalm 1, I used the illustration that we had a World War II Willys Jeep, and we used to go back riding in, in Alabama mud, and it didn't take long for ruts to be formed. So... The text gave me the illustration idea and then I'm bouncing off of that for ways that I can, illustrations I can use. Another is picturesque uses of the Greek or Hebrew word. I love the one in James 1, the one on temptation, because they're drawn away and enticed. You remember that description? Every man is drawn away and enticed by his own lust. When I was studying that text, I discovered that those are fishing words. There you go. What illustrations are you going to use in that sermon? Fishing illustrations. So let the text lead you. Make lists as you're studying. Be looking for those those illustration ideas in the text and jot it down. Remind yourself, I can go there. I can go this direction with it. Um, Constantly looking for potential illustrations that grow out of the text itself. Another source of illustrations is cross references. Other, you know, as you look at, for example, the New American Standard cross references, sometimes it'll take you to another story, an Old Testament story, to other places that illustrate that truth. Treasury of Scripture Knowledge will also take you to texts where there will be a biblical illustration of the point. So be looking in these resources for illustrations. And You know, occasionally you might find a decent illustration in an illustration book, but only use the most reputable because many of them are not even true. They're just collections of ideas, so be very careful what you use from the internet that's, you know, an illustration site because many of them will not be accurate or true. A few warnings about illustrations. Don't always use the same kind Don't introduce your illustrations. Don't say, let me give you an illustration of this. Just start. Um, Avoid illustrations that undermine your credibility. You know, constant references uh, to to movies that probably have objectionable elements that you shouldn't be recommending to your your, um, congregation. Illustrations that demean people groups. You know, you're always looking for things that may undermine your credibility. Don't always use yourself as an illustration. There's a temptation, particularly for younger men, to always use their children as an illustration or their, their family. Do that in very small measure because, frankly, people don't want to hear about your family as an illustration all the time. And you want that variety. And when you do use yourself as an illustration, don't always be the hero of every story. You know, some some pastors, uh, their sermon illustrations makes it sound like they wrote the book The Ten Most Spiritual People in America and How I Taught the Other Nine. You know, you, you don't want to be that guy. Avoid illustrations that reveal or give the appearance of revealing confidences. Don't begin with, I was a counseling a man in our church the other day about his struggle with pornography and Uh, everybody in that room is now thinking, "Uh uh-oh, am I going to be the source of an illustration, even though you don't use the name. So you be very careful about that. Avoid illustrations that would embarrass. This is particularly a problem when we use our family, our wife or children, as illustration points. I almost always, unless I know it's acceptable, I always check with my wife and family before I use them and say, is this okay? Are you comfortable with this? Don't use illustrations that it will embarrass. Make sure your illustrations are accurate. Um, the internet's a great tool, but there is so much unreliable information out there. So use reputable sources only and if there's any doubt, verify it in other ways so that you're you're as close to sure as you can be. Give credit where it's due. If you use someone else's illustration, just acknowledge that. you know so say. You know, James Montgomery Boyce uh, illustrates this so well when he describes, and boom, you lay it out there. So those are the building blocks then for the body of a sermon. Explanation, argumentation, illustration, but there's one more, and that is application. And this application is what you should do with this. You're telling your, your congregation, this is what you should do with this truth. Broadus says, preaching is essentially a personal encounter in which the preacher's will is making a claim through the truth upon the will of the hearer. If there is no summons, there is no sermon. Without application, it's not really a sermon. Henry Ward Beecher expresses it like this, a sermon is not like a Chinese firecracker to be fired off for the noise it makes. It is a hunter's gun. And at every discharge, he should look to see his game fall. You're aiming the truth at your hearers, at your own heart and at your hearers. The consistent message of Scripture is that God intends his word to be applied. John 13, 17, if you know these things, you are blessed, Jesus says, if you do them. Romans 15, 4 talks about the fact that that these things... Are for us to follow and obey. 1 Corinthians 10 11 says these, these things about the wilderness warnings, or the wilderness wanderings rather, were written as warnings to us so that we would not follow their example. James 1 22 Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Johann Albrecht Bengel captured the thrust of scripture when he wrote this in the 1700s, apply yourself wholly to the text and apply the text wholly to yourself. That's a great reminder. Apply yourself to knowing and understanding the text and then apply the text to yourself. (laughs) Excuse me. So, what's the framework for application? It really comes from one of the most famous verses in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the product of His breath, and it is profitable, here it is, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, it's teaching. What does the passage teach? To whom did it or does it apply? Has it been changed by subsequent revelation? It includes Reproof. Does this passage confront errors in my belief? Does this passage confront errors in my thinking or behavior? Correction. Does this passage identify changes I should make in my beliefs? Does this passage identify changes I should make in my thinking or behavior? And then training in righteousness. Are there instructions in this passage to me as God's child that I am to put into practice? That is the framework for the application that we make. Now, how do we create application? Let me give you some guiding principles of application. First of all, it should flow from authorial intent. Our study takes us back, again using Stott's illustration of Between Two Worlds, our study takes us back into the biblical world. But application is the bridge that moves us from the biblical world to the modern world. Sometimes the bridge, that bridge between the biblical world of our text and the modern world of our audience, sometimes that bridge is really short and obvious. For example, love your enemies. Well, guess what? That's a really short bridge because it meant the same thing in the biblical world, or it means the same thing in the modern world that it meant in the biblical world. Love your enemies. There's not a lot of translation required, not a lot of, of... How does this apply? Sometimes that bridge between the biblical world and the modern world is long and high, and the text has to first be converted to a timeless principle. For example, you're teaching through the law, and you come upon this don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. How does that apply? Well, you have to reduce it to the timeless truth that in that context, don't participate in the idolatrous practices of the people around you. So sometimes the bridge is really short, and other times it's a long and high bridge that you have to help people bridge between the biblical world and the modern world. The most powerful application of any passage is always what the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired it. So, when you're thinking about application, the very first thing in your mind should be, what did the Holy Spirit and what did the original human author, how did he intend us to apply this? That's always your first application. Not some idea you have, but based on authorial intent. That's what you want to be looking at. Secondly, it should distinguish between commands to specific individuals or groups and those universally given. This is obvious, but it's so important to remember. Genesis 22 is a great example. You know, God commanded Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. That was not a command to every other person. That was a command to Abraham. So we have to then say, what is the legitimate application of that to every other believer. You have to make that bridge, and you have to say, well, the obvious point is we have to trust God and what he has commanded and said, even when we don't see how it's going to turn out, right? So, you need to distinguish between commands to individuals and those that are universal. The command to Joshua to kill all the Canaanites It's obviously not a command for Christians to take the lives of pagans. Instead, we we look in such stories for the timeless principle that lies beneath it, and that becomes our application. Thirdly, our application should carefully distinguish between what the Bible records and what it approves. And there are so many examples of that. Um, I mentioned Gideon's fleece. That's recorded but it's not, it's not encouraged or even approved of in its context. A fourth principle is of application should be carefully made from narrative. Application is a real challenge when it comes to the stories in Scripture, but it is legitimate. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, from the wilderness wanderings, Paul draws a lesson about running your Christian liberty out to the edge and falling into sin. So we can legitimately apply narrative. But how? There are a couple of tools to help us here. I've listed them. The first is is the comments of the narrator. Sometimes the narrator telling the story, the inspired narrator, will make the point for us. A great example is 2 Chronicles 16, 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe And here's the narrator's comment: Yet, even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. Well, there's a legitimate point to make. Doesn't mean people shouldn't go visit doctors. It means where is their trust? And are they seeking the Lord in the context of that? Do they see the Lord as the great physician that may choose to use human instruments and human medicine? So, you're always looking then at the comments of the narrator in narrative to say, is there, is there a lesson that the narrator's making? Another place you can look is at the words of the main characters. When you read a story in the Bible, you understand that there was a, usually a lot more said than is recorded. So the author included what he included in that dialogue to make a point. So you're looking then... Uh, for what, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he carefully chose to include. That means that he considered those words very important to the point he's trying to get across. I remember when I was preaching through 1 Samuel 17, that jumped out at me. That you have several quotes that the the writer of 1 Samuel chose to include from that story, that account. A lot more was said, but he included those because they're at the heart of what he is intended to communicate. So you're looking in narrative for the words of the main characters and what you can learn from what they're saying. You're also looking at the purpose of the entire book. Back to 1 Samuel 17, when you're studying, when you're studying and teaching 1 Samuel, you're looking at the overall theme of the book, which is what? A transition from the, the judges to the monarchy. And so, you start with chapters 8 to 10, and you have the call for a king. We want a king. Give us a king. You have Saul. Well, what is the nature of a king? A monarchy usually means what? When, when Queen Elizabeth dies, what happens? Who comes to the throne? Yeah, her son, or if he's still living, she may live longer than he does. But... but whoever that is, that's how a monarchy works. Well, guess what happens? You have the first king of Israel, Saul, and the next king is David, who has no relationship to Saul. So if you're not in the palace watching this unfold, what's your first assumption? Mm, Something underhanded went on. Must Must have been a coup of some kind. And so why does Samuel include that? He says... Listen, this was God's transition. God said, I'm going to put in place a man after my own heart. So you have 1 Samuel 15, which shows Saul's heart and you know his refusal to obey God. And then you have 16, where God says, I'm going to identify a man after my own heart. Chapter 17 is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. He's consumed with the glory of God. David says, you know, look at what he's doing to our God. So often the purpose of the entire book will tell you. You also look for God's direct assessment or application in context. Um, for example, in 1 Samuel 15, God's rebuke of Saul through Samuel. When God or the author directly censures or approves, then direct application in narrative is legitimate. A great example is John 12, where Jesus says of what Mary does, what she has done will is, is wonderful, and it'll be recorded wherever the gospel is preached. Then you know, okay, I can make application from that narrative legitimately. Another principle of application is it should only embrace the promises made to us. Bernard Ram, in his book on hermeneutics, says this, every promise in the book is mine is one of the overstatements of the century. Every promise in God's Word is not yours, not mine. So, is the promise universal in scope? Clearly, the promise of the end of Revelation is universal. Come, let the one who hears come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the water of life without cost. Uh, is the promise personal? And a great example of this are the promises in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 26 and John 16, 26. 12 and following, to the apostles, to help them remember all that, was, that they saw. The Spirit would help them and call to their mind all that they saw as they wrote the, the New Testament. That's not a promise to us, you know. Lord, help me to remember what I didn't study. It's not that. It's God's promise to his apostles. Is the promise conditional? James 4, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you is the promise timeless? So you, you want to make sure that you're looking at the promises carefully. The application should be suited to the audience, and you understand this. If you're preaching to an audience of adults or a cross-section, your application is going to be one thing. If you're preaching to middle schoolers, it's going to be different, um, or high schoolers or whatever. So you have to think about the kind of people who will be in the audience. And then the final principle of application is it should be placed in the message where best suited to the text. That can be throughout the body of the sermon. It can be in the conclusion of the sermon. Uh, I like to do both. So you include application under each main point or throughout the main points and at the end as well. Um, what, is Zac- what exactly is application though? Let's make sure we understand it. It's focusing the claims of truth on our own lives, answering the question, so what? It's suggesting ways and means to implement the truth, how, and it's persuading um, or pointing out, I should say, the motivation, persuading people with what the text teaches. Why? Why should they do this? So that is… That's what application does. It, it says, what are you supposed to do with this text? Let me tell you how you can live out the, what this text commands, and then here's why you ought to do it. That's application. Now, let me suggest that on point number two there, suggesting ways and means, you have to be so careful because that is usually something that's not directly taught in the Scripture. If you're saying the Bible says you need, to, you need to study the Bible and you want to help people understand practically how to do that, be careful because the further you get away from the Scripture itself, the less authority you have. So when you start saying um, you need to get up at 5 a.m., You've now gone beyond the scripture. So, if you do that, it's okay to do that, but I I would say include that at the end of your sermon. And I always say, whenever I do that sort of thing, I'll say, now look, this isn't inspired, but here are some helpful ideas. So that you're differentiating between what the Bible says in application and what you're saying in application. Be very careful with the authority you've been given. What are the sources for application? clear application in the text itself. Sometimes you have the imperative. There you go. Do this. Don't do this. Uh, Sometimes it's the hortatory mood. Let us. Let us do this. Let us do this. Same thing. Same idea. Your own spiritual experiences with the issue the text addresses. Uh, This is based on 1 Corinthians. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So as you think about application, sometimes it's knowing your own struggles can help lead you to the right application of a text. Observation of the culture. Sometimes it's knowing what things are like in your city, in your town, and the struggles that are there and what your people are dealing with. That brings your application. Observation of your own people. By the way, let me just caution you on this point, however. Never preach at individuals in the, con- in the congregation, either by name, obviously, or by intention. In other words, don't craft your sermon and say, you know, this guy needs this. He needs to hear this. And I'm going to make sure I get it. I'm going to look at him when I say it. Don't ever do that, all right? Let your application be truly for the church, and let the Holy Spirit do what he does, all right? And hopefully you can pray. I often will pray. Lord, use this truth in that person's life. Maybe I know someone's there It's not in Christ. But, but don't ever direct your sermon at individual's. Pastoral devotional commentaries can be very helpful sources for illustration. Um, I mentioned Boyce and, and Lloyd-Jones. They, they, I'm sorry, for application. They can be very helpful in giving you ideas that move you in different directions for applying the truth. Let me give you some dangers with application. Making the timeless principles that you derive from the text or your application to have the same authority as God's explicit commands. Usually this involves insisting that others live by your conclusions. It works like this. Let me give you an example, and I'm I'm treading where where angels fear to tread, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, The biblical imperative in Deuteronomy 6 says parents are responsible to teach their children God's commands. An application of that is our family, we believe, can best accomplish that via homeschooling. Okay, that's, that's a legitimate conclusion for you to make. But as a teacher, then, a faulty use of application is for you to say, therefore, every Christian parent should homeschool. Now, you've gone beyond what the Scripture teaches. You're making a point that the Scripture doesn't make. You're making your application have the authority of the Word of God. So be very careful to distinguish those two. Failing to distinguish between cultural commands and timeless commands. Foot washing is the classic example. Um, when When you study the text, when you look at it in its context, when you look at the history of the church, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, it's clear that was not something that was to be consistently an ordinance of the church. Another danger in application is artificially identifying timeless commands as culturally conditioned. For example, 1 Timothy 2, Says that women are not to teach in the context of the church or exercise authority over men. In our culture, because that's culturally unacceptable, people go to 1 Timothy 2 and say, well, that was just, uh, that's like foot washing. We don't have to follow that anymore. The problem with that is the context. Be honest with the scripture. The context of 1 Timothy 2 uses, Paul's argument is the purpose for which women were created and the created order. Those are timeless. Those are not given to a given culture. And so there's always a danger in application of letting the culture influence you. You know what's popular out there, and boy, it just feels painful to say this, and so I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say this. Don't do that. Applying personal convictions rather than authorial intent. I grew up in a very legalistic setting, and I remember they used to use First Thessalonians 5, 22, that literally says, abstain from every form of evil. But in the King James, it says, uh, abstain from, from all appearance of evil. Those are two different things. But they love that appearance of evil because suddenly the application of that became, you should never go to a movie theater because the person looking at you don't, doesn't know if you went to that that PG movie or went to that R movie, you know, and so you should never go to a movie theater. That was the application, and it was made with authority. Don't apply your personal convictions as opposed to the authorial intent. Always what does the Scripture say? Another danger of application is failing to apply the truth to your life at all. James 1 makes it very clear that we're to be doers of the Word, and so are the people you teach. And so we want to teach them both by our teaching and by our example. We need to be doers of the word. Now, let me give you, and I know I've taken a little long with application, but this is where so many problems come in. The key questions of application are: what did the author want the original readers to do in response to this passage? The key words there is original readers. Second, what am I supposed to do in response to this passage? Third question, why am I supposed to do what this passage teaches? And fourth question, what are some practical ways or means that I can think of to do what this passage teaches? And then you apply that. Let me give you an example. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. What were the original readers supposed to do with that? Well, the point was God expressly forbids his people to have a sexual relationship with anyone who is not their spouse. But what was the authorial intent of that passage? To me, what is the ultimate question about what am I supposed to do? I may not enter into a sexual relationship with anyone who is not my spouse, but there's also beyond that the question of what what are we supposed to do with this passage? Well, the authorial intent also includes I may not allow myself to desire a sexual relationship with anyone who is not my spouse. Why do I know that that's part of authorial intent? Because of what Christ says. It makes it very clear. And, of course, the Tenth Commandment makes it clear as well. But but it's clear that that is legitimate application. Why am I supposed to be careful sexually? Well, back to Exodus 20, verse 2. Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Eden. I'm the one who redeemed you. I have a right to tell you how you use your body. What about ways and means? Well, here's a way or a means, not allowing close relationships with members of the opposite sex who are not my spouse. And here's another, not being alone in a potentially intimate situation with members of the opposite sex. Those are ways and means. They're not commanded in Scripture, but they're ways and means to accomplish that. All of those are legitimate applications of that command. But the farther you get down the list, the more careful you have to be because the final ones are not commands in Scripture. So what do you say? You say, look, this is not command in Scripture, but these are really helpful ideas. You need to be so careful with the relationships you allow. Does that make sense? All right, so that's application. Application, argument, and illustration, and application. Those are the parts of the body of the message. Again, explanation, you explain what the text says. Argumentation, you explain why they should believe your your explanation. Illustration, this is what it looks like in a picture. And then application, this is what you ought to do with it. Those four elements build the body of your sermon. That's what it consists of. Now, as far as the process for creating that body of your sermon, the stages, there are really three stages in constructing the argument or the discussion of your sermon. The first of those we've talked about already in your exegesis, you're collecting the data. You know, you're, you're taking the sheets or computer or whatever you're using, and you're collecting the data from your study. That's, that's the first step. The second step is creating a rough sketch, of the sermon. At this stage, you're not creating your finished sermon, you're creating a sort of flow of thought. Here's how I see the sermon unfolding. So you have introduction, introduction idea, read the text, here's my proposition, the proposition package, here's my first main point. Under my first main point, I'm going I'm to start with explanation. And here are the key things I want to explain. And then I want to illustrate, and so maybe you just write the word illustration and the illustration idea. Then um, here's the application, and here are four application points I want to make under this main point. So you're building a, a rough sketch of your sermon from what you've, you've collected in all of the data you put together. Now, at this point, if you're going to use a computer, and most of you will, then I would suggest... I collect the data during my exegesis on legal pads, like I told you, sheets of legal pad, where I have however many sheets there are, points in the passage. And then, when it comes to creating a rough draft of my sermon, I create that on computer. Now, let me let me just see if I can do this here. I'm going to exit this uh, presentation and show you. One of the things that will save you time, if I can get my cursor to work, I'm not sure why it's not working. Um, Let's just see if this works. You guys know why I can't get my uh, cursor to work here. I think maybe it's because I need to display the screen separately. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever I did, mess me up here. It looks like you have a separate screen because it's up there. Yeah. Sorry, just a moment. Technology. Go slideshow. Uh-huh. Oops. Play from current slide. Okay, well, we'll skip what I was going to show you, and I'll describe it since I thought I could do it, and I've done it before, but it's not working. So here's what I do. It When you go to create this, this rough sketch, it helps and will save you so much time if you'll create a template. Let's say you use Word as your as your uh, place that you create your sermon. Create a template. You can do this in Word. You can research it online, but you can create a template where it is the paper size you're going to print to. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. It is. It, it has, for example, mine has title at the top and the word title is in the font I want my title to be in. So all I have to do is click title and type in the title. And then below that it says scripture and I click scripture and I type the scripture in. Then my outline point, says it has Roman numeral one and my outline point, just, it just says outline point. And that's my template. And then behind it is, is quotation marks for the reference for that outline point. And all I have to do then is go in and enter the data But the formatting, the page, all of that set. At the end of that document, I I use, and I'll show you here so you in a in a way you can see, I use a six and a half by nine sheet for my notes. And um, I have my template set to print to that size, so it's easy. At the end of that document, though, I have a large sheet done horizontally, and that's for my block diagram. So the first thing I do is open the template and I copy to that last page my, um, the text for that and I do a block diagram on it and then I save it at the end of that document. So the, the block diagram is always there with my sermon notes and I never lose the work that I've done. So that's the rough draft. Now as you're doing that, you're, as you're building the body of the message, you're going to sort through all the information you've collected looking only for what will enable the theme of the text and now your proposition to produce the maximum effect. John Stott puts it this way, we must be ruthless in discarding the irrelevant. This is easier said than done. During our hours of meditation, numerous blessed thoughts and scintillating ideas may have occurred to us and have been dutifully jotted down. It is tempting to drag them all in somehow. Resist the temptation." So you're now looking at those sheets, you collected data as you're creating this rough draft, and you're saying, what really is important for people to know about this passage? What illustrates it well? What are the most important application points? And then the third stage is writing the sermon. Writing the sermon. And this is where you fill it out. And I would encourage you to write out enough so that you don't lose all the study. I I study 30 hours a week. If if I don't write enough in my sermon notes to remember that study and to have it all there for the future, then a year from now, honestly a month from now, I'm not gonna remember everything that I studied and everything I taught. It's gonna be gone. So all those hours just, they're gone. But if I make my sermon notes full enough so that I have captured everything important in that text, and I can preach from those sermon notes a year from now with, with a short review, now I've captured the heart of it. So I would encourage you to consider that. Also, it is important for clarity. By the way, Lloyd-Jones uh, did this for many years. He wrote out his sermon in near-manuscript form. Why? Because, as Francis Bacon said, writing makes an exact man. Or as John Stott argues, the discipline of clear thinking demands writing. So there's, there's benefit to forcing yourself to put it down on paper and know the flow of what you're gonna say. You also can say it in new and fresh ways. When you're in the pulpit, you tend to revert to the same way that you've always said things. But when you're in your study, you can fashion it and frame it in a fresh way more easily. Um, by the way, just a little test. Is and I won't spend long on this, but one of the things you can do is take your sermon notes and color code those four elements that are supposed to be in the body, the um, explanation, application, argumentation, illustration, and just go through your sermon marking how much of each you've included. What you're going to see is you're probably neglecting something or you're probably doing too much of one and not enough of the other. And uh, so this will help give you a balance as you look at your your sermons. The next part of exposition is creating a logical flow. Creating a logical flow. And this has to do with showing your listeners that you're moving from one point to another. John Broadish writes, Transitions are to sermons what joints are to the bones of the body. They are the bridges of the discourse, and by them the preacher moves from one point to the next, we're talking about transition statements. The purposes of a transition is to provide emphasis, to emphasize the main divisions of the message, and movement to show your audience that you're moving from one main point to the next main point, logic to show the logical connection between the two major points, and introduction to introduce the next main division. So they're very important. Here are the components of a transition. and again, I illustrate at the end, but look at the components there. You have a brief review statement, a transition word, a, a question or statement regarding the next point, the key plural noun repeated. So here's an illustration. There's one last instruction there was my plural noun, keyword. There's one last instruction Paul gives to us as the leaders of the church. Not only are we to build on the right foundation and use the right materials, there's my review, but also there's my transition word going to my third point. I would encourage you to seriously weigh the importance of transitions because it provides clarity. There's nothing more more confusing for you as a listener. You've sat and listened to people, and it's like, where are we? You're looking over at your spouse, and you're like, what, what did you get? What? You've just lost your listener. You want to be as clear as possible. Transition statements allow you to do that. Craft them. Think about them. You have, a, you have this statement that says, we're leaving one point and we're going to the next. You include that key word. If it's principles, here's the next principle. If, it, if it, the the sermon has four or five points, then at some point you want to repeat the points you've covered so far and then say, and the, the third instruction, again, back to your plural noun, the, the third principle is, and everybody knows where you are. There's a clear roadmap for where you are and where you're going. Very briefly, I'll comment on introductions and conclusions. The introduction um, is there to do several things. It's there to secure interest, grab the listener's attention, create a need. Why should your listener listen to you for 45, 50 minutes? And then to introduce the theme of the passage. That's really what your introduction exists to. Don't do the sensational thing. Just keep in mind this is what it's there to do. So always think, how am I going to secure their interest? Or how am I going to show them that it's important, this message and what I'm about to share with them is important? And how am I going to introduce the theme? I would encourage you to write it out as well. The conclusion exists to summarize the message, to review the the theme of the passage, the major divisions, and to apply the truth, to aim at the will of the listener. Um, And... Again, both of these should be taken seriously. Some people spend very little time on the introduction. They don't know how to get there. They get up and kind of meander, not figuring out how to get to the message. Others spend a lot of time on the introduction and never think about how to bring this thing in for a landing. You don't want to do either of those. You want to have both an introduction and a conclusion that you've thought through. I would encourage you with a conclusion to write it out. Don't announce it. Don't say, and in conclusion, because what just happened? You just lost everybody, they're packing up. Uh, don't provide new material, and and of course, if you haven't already in the sermon somewhere, you want to make sure you appeal to unbelievers to repent. Now, moving on to a very practical consideration, formatting your notes. This is a personal preference, but here are some of the issues you should consider as you do this. Um, are they going to be handwritten or computer-generated? I would, I would strongly urge you to use a computer because, first of all, if you have handwriting like mine, they're readable, um, searchable. They're easily edited. You can also block and copy from one sermon to another sermon if there's a section where you really explain something well. You can take it with you. You can carry all of them with you wherever you go, today's world. Um, and they're easily archived and preserved. Just a note on that, if you are a preacher and you've spent hours preparing sermons, you better take a lot of care with those sermons. That is your life. So don't just have those sermons on one computer hard drive in one location, because if that computer's stolen or something else, a fire, there goes your life's work. I'm, I'm fastidious about this. you know. I have it on my computer, I have it in the cloud, I have it on another source because I, I don't want to lose all of that work. I have a file here, a hard file of the sermons I've preached in my office, so spread out the, the risk and danger when it comes to that. Um, as far as the style, some people do a manuscript, either a full manuscript or a detailed outline. Others take just a simple speaking outline into the pulpit and... Some even do it extemporaneously. I would not encourage you to do that unless you are incredibly seasoned and uh, are able to do that. Highlighting and underlining, you want to create your own key so that when you glance, and you can even see here on mine, I have things that I've highlighted, things I've marked in yellow, and so when I glance down at my notes, the main ideas jump out at me. You want to create your own key, whatever that is, to make those things jump out at you, main points, keywords or points, verses you want them to turn to, authors that you quote, etc. Let me give you some examples of notes. This is uh, John MacArthur's notes. You can see again that uh, he handwrites; he doesn't use computer. But um, you can see that he takes another color, his red marker, and he identifies certain things. He has he writes the word key out there to say, don't miss this. If you're in a hurry, you're, you're, you're running late, this is something you don't want to miss. You need to punctuate this. And then you can see that um, he underlines certain key words. Um, he points the text out that he wants to call to people's attention. Here is Steve Lawson's notes. And I have no idea how Steve <laughs> preaches from that. But you can see at the top, he has his outline point, And then he has... Uh, the the text itself, the explanation, um, and and then some points he wants to make. So again, and he highlights certain things to draw his attention to them. This is different with each person, but you want to key your notes. You don't want to have a, a page that's white with black text on it and there's nothing. Why? Because it all looks the same when you glance down at it. You want something that's indicating what's important. Here is... Uh, John Piper's notes. He preaches from a manuscript, but you can see even though he does a manuscript for future books and things, I assume, he, does, he also mar- marks things. You can see he, he boxes scripture references, he highlights the, the text itself, um, and he has, he has points out to the margin that he wants to make. So again, he's, he's keying his notes to that. I'll skip this one. No, I won't. I'll go back to this. This is Adrian Rogers. He's now with the Lord. But you can see he took a basic speaking outline into the pulpit. He had a great memory and did a lot of it from memory. Again, if if that's you, great, but that's not me. And here's a sample of my own notes. This is, um, you know, I even marked something for a time cut because I was worried about going along, which is always my issue as it is right now. Um, And And then you can see I highlight certain things in yellow. You can see I have my transition point right there before my main point um, that's marked with the arrow. Uh, There's one last instruction. I read that to you a few minutes ago, and then that introduces the third point, and it's marked with a different font or different uh, type size. And you can see I put the references that that point covers there behind it. It's in verses 16 and 17, so I'm, I'm never lost when I'm teaching through my notes. So those are just some examples of what you can do in terms of notes. But you can see certain points in common. Choose your size and then make sure that you mark it in such a way that the main things stand out to you when you look down, that you're differentiating. For example, in this one, uh, is there a sample here? No, there's not one on this page. But if I'm going to have everybody turn with me to a passage, I underline it so that I know that one, I want us all to go there. So when I see an underlined text in my notes, I know, turn with me to such and such, and and we go there. So you just wanna make your notes as helpful as possible. By the way, one other thing I would say about that, guys start by preaching from eight and a half by 11, and they go to full, both sides of the margin, and they often do it in paragraph form, you cannot pick anything out from that. If you glance down, you're lost. You've got to read the paragraph to figure out where you are. You'll notice I do bullet points so that each point is made, and I indent points under others that they support so I know that that is somehow describing the point that comes before it. So when I glance down, I know where I am. I can, I can grab a sentence or two in my mind, and I'm ready to go. And it's shorter, shorter lines, so it's easier to capture and a glance down. So those are things to consider as you think about your notes. A couple of other things to mention in terms of preparing your heart and mind. Saturday night or Sunday morning, pray through the passage, mark your preaching notes, look up any references outside your passage, familiarizing yourself with them, uh, so that I'm not taking anybody somewhere that I haven't freshly gone and then pray and get to bed. Try to get as much sleep as you can. Sunday morning, uh, prayer and meditation. Either mark or read through your notes, depending on your circumstance. But in terms of just before you're preaching, I would encourage you to consider a pre-pulpit ritual. Somehow to remind yourself of what you're doing. I'm standing down there. We're singing the closing song before I'm getting up. I'm briefly praying. Lord, I often pray Luther's prayer. You know, Lord, I can't make this turn out well. Won't you make it turn out well? You know, or or I pray through 1 Peter 4.11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. Lord, I'm, this is your word. Help me to preach your word as your word. Um, and, and other passages as well. Ask the Spirit's help. Then remind yourself briefly of your initial greeting. What are you actually going to say the moment you start? That's an awkward moment if you haven't thought about that. Um, and then... The first few words of your introduction. Make sure they're in your mind where you're going to begin your sermon. So, there's an overview of where we've been. And before this session is over, in just a few minutes, and I may take a a few minutes extra to do this, but I want to briefly touch on delivery, preaching an expository sermon. We've talked about studying the text, crafting the sermon. What about actually preaching it? Well, It is obviously crucial to understand what preaching is. In his lectures on preaching, Philip Brooks defined preaching, the act of preaching, as the communication of divine truth through human personality. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined preaching as a proclamation of the truth of God as mediated through the preacher. Now, both of those excellent Definitions help shape several guiding principles of an effective delivery. Let me just give you briefly, this, this won't overburden you. These are very simple but so important. Four primary principles of delivery. First of all, clarity. The most important component in delivery is clarity, communicating the truth in a way that it can be understood. How do you accomplish that? Well, first of all, you have a single obvious theme. That you stress and repeat if you want to be clear then have that proposition be clear with it state it repeat it when it's appropriate to repeat it have a simple outline that clearly follows the passage that'll aid clarity have brief transitional statements that review the previous major points and signal a change to the next major point to the listener And then use words that are clear, grammar that's easy to follow. That's clarity. You do those things, you'll be clear. People will know what the passage means and how it's developed. The second principle of delivery is enlargement. Enlargement. The style of your communication should be an enlargement of your normal communication. In other words, it should still be natural. You shouldn't be one person communicating outside the pulpit and a different person communicating in the pulpit. It should still be you, but it has to be larger. Every component such as your volume, your intensity, your facial expressions and gestures, all of those must be enlarged in what way? So that the person sitting at the back of the room gets the message you want them to get. They have to be larger. Let me let me illustrate this for you. Let me let me and I do this when I teach uh, preaching here with our seminary guys, I take them over to our large auditorium. Nobody's in there except a few seminary guys. I put them back in the terrace, and then I put one guys on the, guy on the platform with me, and I say, okay, start by speaking normally as you would if you're talking to me. I'm standing right here next to you. Let me illustrate. So if I'm talking to somebody in my office, I'm talking like this. I'm talking in this is my voice, I'm not speaking softly, this is how I would talk to someone personally. The gesture sizes, this is the size I would use across my desk. The intensity of my face, this is the way it would look if I were talking to someone personally. But if I do that for an hour in this room, much less in an auditorium that holds 1,100, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. Everybody's going to sleep. Everybody's going to sleep. So what do I have to do I have to enlarge everything. It's still me. It's not a different person, but my volume has to get louder. Why? Because I want them to hear it, and I want them to hear it well where they're not being put to sleep. I'm not worried about the guy on the front row. He's going to get it. I'm worried about those people back there, so I have to enlarge my voice. I also enlarge my gestures. If I'm normally talking to someone, my gestures are like this. I I talk with my hands, but, but it's like this. But if I'm in an auditorium this size then my gestures get bigger. They enlarge. My volume grows, my gestures get bigger. The facial expressions are more pronounced. Why? Because I'm not worried about him, I'm worried about him. And so everything gets bigger. That's how you have to think about it. Your your volume, your intensity, your facial expressions, your gestures, everything enlarges to get the message to the back row. If you want an example of whether you're doing this well, have somebody record you a video, but don't have them zoom in. Have them do it like it looks from the back row in the room you're teaching. And then see what you think. I remember the first time I watched that when I taught in seminary, I thought I did a decent job. But when I watched the video, I thought, I don't see how anybody stayed awake. (laughs) Seriously. Because the message you think you're communicating is probably not the message you're communicating. It has to be larger. Speaking to a congregation, MacArthur writes, from the pulpit should be no different than speaking with them individually in the pastor's office. However, Broadus goes on to say, while it should be the spontaneous product of your own personality, it should be driven by desire to communicate to your audience. So it's you But it it can't be like you have a personal conversation with a person one-on-one. Everything has to be bigger. Volume and gestures and so forth. Thirdly, passion. Effective delivery calls for passion. If you expect your congregation to believe your message, then you have to deliver it with passion. Uh, MacArthur writes in his book on expository preaching, G. Campbell Morgan argues that passion is an essential ingredient for an effective delivery. In explaining what he means by passion, he recalls a discussion the English actor MacReady had with a well-known pastor. The pastor was trying to understand why crowds flocked to fictional plays, but few came to hear him preach God's changeless truth. MacReady responded, this is quite simple, I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. He goes on to say, I'm not arguing for mere excitement. Painted fire never burns, and an imitated enthusiasm is the most empty thing that can possibly exist in a preacher. Given the preacher with a message, I cannot understand that man not being swept sometimes right out of himself by the fire and the force and the fervency of his work. In other words, how can you be genuinely passionate in your message. Listen carefully. Passion is the natural result of being truly consumed with the truth that you're teaching. If you are convinced that is the God's truth and it is important to you and it's important to the people you're teaching, you'll be passionate. You have a desire to get that truth across to them. Lloyd-Jones writes, preaching is is theology coming through a man who is on fire. A true understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. Notice that a true understanding and personal experience of the truth leads to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in the pulpit and should never be allowed to enter one. You say how what does passion look like for me? Well, let me give you an example. How do you respond in your favorite sporting event? Or if you're not a sporting person, whatever it is that you're really passionate about, how do you respond? If you were to, if you're a Cowboys fan and you were to go to a Cowboys game, how would you respond at that game? That's your passion. If you're the kind of person that goes, wow, that, that was a great play, then that's your passion. <laughs> but if you're the kind of person that goes, wow, that was a great play, then that's what it means for you to be passionate. And that needs to be the passion that you communicate as you're presenting God's truth. I'm not saying every moment, but when it's appropriate. And the fourth element of delivery is authority. Authority. A compelling messenger of the truth always speaks with authority. Our Lord spoke with authority, Matthew 7 tells us. Peter demands Timothy speak with authority in Titus 2.15. Peter demands this of anyone who has a teaching gift in 1 Peter 4. Speak, as it were, the oracles of God. So how do we demonstrate authority in our preaching? A godly character that complements our message. You want to have authority? Be the kind of person out of the pulpit that causes people, when you're in the pulpit, to say, wow, I, I want to hear what he has to say. I know he's the real deal. A message that clearly and obviously reflects the authorial intent of the passage and can be delivered in that confidence. When you know that you've done the hard work and that you're teaching what God meant in that passage, you can speak with authority because you know it's not your authority, it's God's authority. Thirdly, a presentation of the truth that demands of the listener what the scripture commands. In other words, you're bringing the truth to bear. I'm not saying you should always do this, but from time to time, don't be afraid to use the second person pronoun, you. You know, we talk about we. We need this, and we need to do this, and we need to... Okay, there are lots of times that's appropriate, but there are times when it's appropriate to speak with the authority of God and say, you need to do this, or you and I need to do this. And then another way to show authority is by using other scriptural passages to illustrate and support the preaching text that brings authority because it's clear that what you're telling people is what the rest of the scripture brings to weight brings to bear and the weight on their lives as well so those are the main principles of our delivery Here's a great summary of Delivery by Lloyd-Jones. Be natural. Forget yourself. Be so absorbed in what you are doing and in the realization of the presence of God and in the glory and greatness of the truth that you are preaching that you forget yourself completely. Self is the greatest enemy of the preacher, more so than the case of any other man in society. And the only way to deal with self is to be so taken up with and so enraptured by the glory of what you are doing that you forget yourself altogether. So when you meditate on the text, when you've lived in the text, when you've owned it as your own, when you see the importance of this truth and you have a compelling desire to get this truth across to others, you will forget yourself, you will be passionate, you will have a delivery that is compelling because you are consumed with the importance of that truth. So where does all of this go? Just reminding you of the process as we finish this session together. Exegesis is studying the biblical text. There's preparation, observation, meditation, interpretation, and evaluation. And then there's exposition, crafting an expository sermon. You write the proposition you structure the message with your outline, you build the body of your sermon with explanation, argumentation, illustration, and application. You create a logical flow using transitions that show you're moving from one point to another. You add an introduction and conclusion. You format your preaching notes, and then before you get into the pulpit, you prepare your heart to preach. That is, and by the way, these slides will come to you. This is a great checklist for you to to go through and make sure that you're doing all that you need to do in the process of your exegesis and writing of your sermon. I'll conclude this session with Peter's words. I've mentioned them several times, but I love this. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time we've been able to spend together in this session. Lord, thank you for the, the treasure you've given us in your word for the biblical world that we get to spend so many of our hours in. but Father, don't let us stay in the biblical world. Remind us that we are to speak to our generation with the timeless truth that comes out of the biblical world and Lord, help us to bridge that by creating messages, sermons that bring the the authorial intent of the passage we're teaching to bear on our lives and the lives of the people that we teach. Lord, help us to be skilled workmen. Help us to commit ourselves to these things, to to use the words of Paul. Help us to be in these things, to be absorbed by them so that our progress will be evident to all we pray this in jesus name amen